you guys know the name Peter Berger? Just an ordinary guy. The uh, normal high school student, you know, it wasn't, wasn't a super popular, kind of got picked on, but um, definitely had some really good things going for him, a pretty bright mind, for one. And so, what life happens so often in high school, he got bit by a radioactive spider. <laughs> and, uh, and then ends up with all these powers that he didn't have before. Yeah. You know how going through that process is tough, you know, learning, <laughs> like what those powers are and trying to sort out what you can and can't do. Well, it kind of came to a head for old Peter when the, the bully in school um, challenged him to a fight. And the 1996 version of him uh, rose to the challenge and he uh, he was able to anticipate the moves that were coming from the, the guy that was fighting him, the big bully, and he was able to dodge the punches and duck the blows, and he ended up winning the fight, and not just winning it, but humiliating the guy he was fighting with, and really a decisive victory for Peter Parker. This scene that we're going to watch follows that, where he's in the car with his uncle, Uncle Ben, and Uncle Ben is, uh, is his guardian, because his parents uh, passed away. And so Aunt May and Uncle Ben are the guardians. And Peter has a little heart-to-heart -heart with his uncle here, which I think sets up where I want to go today. So we're hopefully going to have it on the screen. Thanks for the ride. Now, wait a minute. We need to talk. Well, we can talk later. But we can talk now. If you let me. What do we have to talk about right now? Because we haven't talked at all for so long. Your Aunt May and I don't even know who you are anymore. You shirk your chores. You, you have all those weird experiments in your room. You, you start fights at school. I didn't start that fight. I told you that. You sure as hell finished. Well, what was I supposed to do? Run away? No, you're not supposed to run away. Pete, look, you're changing. I know I'm going to do exactly the same thing at your age. No, not exactly. Peter. These are the years when the man changes into the man he's going to become the rest of his life. Just be careful when you change into This guy, Flash Thompson, he probably deserved what happened. But just because you can beat him up, doesn't mean the right to. Remember, with great power comes great responsibility. Are you afraid that I'm going to turn into some kind of criminal? Quit worrying about me, okay? Something's different. I'll figure it out. Stop lecturing me, please. I don't mean to lecture. I don't mean to preach. And I know I'm not your father. Then stop pretending to be.
power, and so this line, power, with those who are given much power, there's much responsibility, really becomes a central theme in the way he has to understand himself. And so as the story unfolds, Uncle Ben actually gets killed before they get to have the, uh, the moment of kind of making peace with the moment we just saw. No spoiler alert. No. <laughs> this has all, all been spoiler alerted, so I have it's 96. <laughs> so anyway, um, this moment between uh, Uncle Ben and Peter becomes this defining thing for Peter, where the last line, as Uncle said, really becomes almost like a model or an MO for Spider-Man, where with all of this power, responsibility becomes important. And so what, where Uncle Ben passes away, it, it actually creates a, a, a heightened awareness of how important this theme was for young Peter. See, Peter was, was consumed with a natural instinct in the hallway of the school when Flash wanted a fight. Self-preservation. Self-preservation isn't a bad thing. It is hardwired in us. It is the thing that makes us want to survive in situations where we're physically threatened. It is the thing that makes us want to achieve certain things as far as skills go so that we can earn a living or so that we can make an impact. Self-preservation drives us to be a better version of ourselves or to protect ourselves, to gain things, to maintain things, to earn things. That instinctual drive at the core of us is central to what drives us. And so it's not a bad thing. Self-preservation also moves us to be a person that wants to think about our resources, that wants to think about whether we have enough to go the long haul, whether we've saved enough for retirement, and so on. Self-preservation is something we all are acquainted with, whether we're aware of it or not. So in this clip, Peter is faced with a tension that comes when we start to imagine how do we take what we have in our hands and think about how it relates to others. Okay? So self-preservation looks at ourselves. But there comes a moment, and in Peter's case, it was Uncle Ben's lecture in the car, where we realize that the power that we have that comes with our self-preservation, if left to its own devices, can destroy us, can turn us into a villain. Whereas, if we are someone who can view something beyond just preserving and maintaining and earning for ourselves, then there's more that can be accomplished through our lives. Tracking so far? Should we just watch Spider-Man? No. <laughs> I'd be tempted. That'd be a lot easier for me. So today we are carrying on in our series of the Book of Acts, and it is like a highlight reel of crazy stories. So if if you want some good uh, wake up in the morning reading, the Book of Acts has lots of really intense stories where you're like, what? This and then this and then this, and it, it's just crazy as you read through the book one thing after another. Um, but today we're going to focus in on two characters, one being Stephen and one being Simon, okay? Because that's where we're at in our progression. By the way, we're not going through the whole book of Acts, we're just going up to where Paul starts going on missionary journeys everywhere, and we're going to stop there in the series. So, uh, Father, as we look in your word, 
we know that sometimes quieting ourselves down and recognizing that we come with our hang-ups, we come with our doubts, we come with all kinds of questions. And if we don't, then I wonder if we're even coming honestly. And so we want to come honestly to these characters, knowing that they're real people, but that they're also us. That we can see our stories wrapped up in the stories of these two characters. And so we pray that as we learn from them, that it would somehow flow over to the things that are going on in our own thoughts and our own struggles and the things that we're facing as individuals. And ultimately, things that we're facing as a group, as a church. So uh, we invite you to use this time to convict, to encourage, to teach uh, through your learning Jesus. Amen. So a bit of background. As far as the church is concerned, this part of the book of Acts is pretty, pretty peaceful. It's a, kind of a time of peace where, where the church is just getting rolling. Jesus has exited the scene, come back and exited again. And his followers have taken up the mantle of leadership. And they're trying to figure out how that makes sense. And so they're wrestling through what it means to carry the message of hope and love and life into the world. In the, in the name or kind of in the way that Jesus did. So how to be good representations of Jesus or good ambassadors, we could say. That's how scripture describes it. And so it's, it's a relatively peaceful time. There's a, little, there's a little conflict with how some widows are feeling like one group is being treated better than the other group. And so that, that's sort of the first conflict that comes up. And so they decide to pick seven people that can kind of be responsible for some of the daily tasks of how church life functions. And so Stephen happens to be one of them. And then fast forward through that part of the story. We, we, we learn that Stephen, and we can put verse 9, nine up for chapter 6 here, 9 to 11. Um, we, we learn that Stephen is doing some pretty good things. That he's a guy who's full of wisdom, Scripture says. And that he, he has the spirit in him. Uh, or we could, you know, just swing it and go with 6.7. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably my fault. Whatever, I can just read it. Without finding it. Okay, so this is what it says. Um, Alright, so Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Which is like this summary statement where you go read between the lines. Stephen was this powerful leader, influencer type that seemed to have an ability to open up a new way of seeing the world. Okay? He was able to talk and be with people in a way where significant movements of God worked through him. So what that looks like, we have to, we have to sort of guess. But we, we have some good guesses from other stories. As you might expect, verse 9, opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. So, in typical fashion, somebody who's doing something good, something pure, something wonderful, not about himself, meets opposition. Okay? So, the, he meets this opposition from a religious group who's bent on controlling him. He, he, who's bent on saying, you're, you're operating outside of the status quo. You're doing stuff we're not super comfortable with here, and so we're going to shut her down. Okay? 
We have a way of doing things here, Stephen, and you're operating outside of the way we do things. And, you know, we're the religious leaders, and so for you to threaten the way we do things is not only for you to threaten that, but you're threatening us, and you're threatening God. And so we have the authority to shut you down by any means necessary. And so what they come up with, they could not stand up against him, uh, against the wisdom and the spirit given to him as he spoke. And so they just go dirty. They secretly persuade some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they decide, well, let's just lie. Let's just, uh, let's just misrepresent him and get him out of here. You know, it's for the higher good. So yeah, we're kind of being shady in the way we do it. But it's for the higher good, so who cares? Let's get rid of Stephen. And so they stir up the people, and Stephen ends up having to be on trial before this group called the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin's made up of a whole bunch of religious leaders whose job basically is to make sure people keep in keeping with the status quo. So they, uh, they invite him in, and they say, we've heard charges against you that you've been, you've been disrespecting our religion. You know, that's the way we can describe what they're, what they're accusing you of. And so this guy, who's been doing nothing but this pure expression of what he believes Jesus was asking him to be about, helping folks, loving folks, um, Help letting God work through him to bring hope and joy and love into the lives of the people around him, so threatens the religious leaders by being so good, which is, you know, kind of a red flag, like flag on the plate right there, that that's threatening enough that he has to go to trial over it. And so he ends up at the Sanhedrin trial, and he gives a speech. It is a speech for the ages, literally. Now his speech... Uh, let's just backtrack for a second to verse 10. Okay, verse 10 before we get here. So just think about the way this person is described, okay? It says, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So Stephen had something going on where he had been um, gifted somehow with an ability to hear and perceive things from God, where he was able to communicate in a way through the Spirit, which I know we're kind of in the deep end here, to have an impact that would be more than if he just tried to do it kind of from his own thoughts. Tracking? So here's how the speech goes. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But he launches into a, a description of over the course of history of the, of the nation of Israel, how he starts with Abraham, then he goes to Joseph, then he goes to Moses, and each time, each character that he goes through, he's talking about them as the fathers of the people that he's on trial against. So Sanhedrin, your father Abraham, your fathers that dealt with Joseph, your fathers that dealt with Moses, and each time he's pointing out that just like your fathers that didn't get it, when Abraham moved to the prophet, just like your fathers that tried to shut down Joseph before they realized that God was working through him and had some weird dreams, just like your fathers who couldn't see that Moses, Moses was the deliverer, wanted to worship golden calves and stuff instead of God, just like them, you've seen Jesus the same way. And so he goes through all of these characters in their history 
And then he, he certainly is not concerned with self-preservation. Okay, so he is poking the bear hard. Okay, and it's like uh, he's just hammering away at them until he gets to the end of his speech. Uh, at the end, um, this is what he says. I'm not sure if we have it for the screen, so just read it here. You stiff-necked people, he says. You heart, your hearts and your ears are uncircumcised. It's a weird thing to say, but it means it means uh, that the circumcision is sort of the signal of a promise as God as your protector. Saying you, your, your hearts and your ears don't buy in. You know, you don't actually believe this, and you, and you don't actually hear what God wants to communicate to you. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors didn't persecute? No, now he's getting fired up. He's, yeah. They even killed those that predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. Isn't he the one on trial? You've received the law that was given, given through angels, but you sure haven't obeyed it. The members of the Sanhedrin were furious. I love this picture. And they gnashed their teeth at him. Which I don't know how you do. But it's, it's not something you want to see. And then Stephen, full of the Spirit, looks up to heaven, sees the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he says something that gets him says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This was offensive. Enough where they took him outside the town and they stoned him. Which they threw rocks on him until he died. Somebody said, truth hurts. Yeah. Now at the end of the story, Stephen is, uh, just before he dies, while they were stoning him, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Sound familiar? Remember somebody else who did that one? Yeah. So when we talk about somebody who's operating in the spirit, I want to just pause there and explain that because it's kind of the deep end of it, right? So when we talk about in the power of the Spirit, or by the power of the Spirit, we hear this, right? And I think John chapter 14, is that one there? John 14? It's all in the welcome slide. John 14 uh, gives us a, a picture of what, what we're talking about when we talk about the Spirit. Okay, okay. just toggle on over. Okay, so John uh, 14, 26 says this. The advocate, so this is just helping us understand what we mean when we hear Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of Jesus, or the Spirit of Jesus Christ, or the Holy Dove, all the same thing, okay? But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you, is what Jesus says, okay? So when we're scratching our heads, we say, well, what's the difference between Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God the Father? And, you know, we get kind of confused and rightfully so. What we notice pretty quickly in the book of John, if you really want to read about it, go to chapter 16 and it really explains it. 
but chapter, chapter 14 gives us this snapshot, that, that the Holy Spirit describes what Jesus is about. Okay? It's not Jesus, but it's His Spirit. So you know when you say something like, uh, in the spirit of teamwork, let's all run a lap together. Right? You know? Because, you know, we'll be commiserating together. In the spirit of teamwork. When we say, in the spirit of teamwork, we mean in keeping with the attitudes and the beliefs and the impulses that teamwork describes. Right? Isn't that what we mean? Or in the spirit of brevity. You know, like that's like shortness. I'm going to say this quickly. I'm not saying that right now. But in the spirit of long-windedness. You know? It would be like in keeping with the theme. Okay? So that's, that's one aspect of how we could think about this. And, and some people do. Where they say, in the Spirit means in the same way that Jesus would think about life. In the same way that Jesus would think about how to operate as a human. In keeping with his attitudes. In keeping with, with the way Jesus functions. It's in the Spirit of it. Like, we want to do it in the same kind of way. Where it's a selfless way. Where it's a way that... that that um, communicates love and communicates hope. We want to do it in that spirit. But then we add by the spirit, and that has a different tone. Because now all of a sudden, we're not just talking theoretically about kind of uh, an ethic or a philosophy, but now we're talking about a person. Not a person in the flesh that we would sort of shake hands with, but we're talking about a person in the sense that God's Holy Spirit operates in a way that doesn't just inspire us, but that actually empowers us. Do you see the difference? So in the spirit, I'm just using the terms this way for now, because they get used kind of the same in, in scripture. But in the spirit of, we can think of it like, in keeping with the way Jesus would want us something to happen, like in the spirit of, of teaching. But then by the spirit is... We also are invited to imagine and know and believe and experience that the Holy Spirit can work in us in an empowering way. Mm -hmm. So where we all of a sudden can do more than we were able to do previously when God wasn't involved. Mm -hmm. Tracking? Yeah. In and by? Both go together. Now here's what's interesting. You can't do things by the Holy Spirit without being in the Holy Spirit. You get that? So if, if the attitudes of who Jesus is and, and like the, the mission and the purpose of what God is about is something you don't agree with, then you're not going to be empowered by the Spirit to do it. That's actually what spiritual manipulation is. Where people look the part, but it's not for real. And so they're doing it in a way that is really about building something for themselves instead of promoting the spirit of Jesus. It's promoting the big mission or purpose of Jesus. Alright, so um, like Uncle Ben and his death in Spider-Man and how it sort of inaugurates a whole new chapter for uh, young Peter Parker. Stephen's death creates an incredible change in history. So Saul is standing over him. That's the Apostle Paul. He later has to kind of have a reckoning about that. So he's one of the ones that thinks he's a sham. And so is there when he gets stoned to death. 
Um, but what happens in the, in the next chapter, the beginning of chapter 8, is this. I'll toggle back unless you got me there. Oh, there it is. Okay, so Saul is there. On that day, a great and relentless persecution. So Stephen's the first of many. People start getting, like, thrown in jail. But look at this. Um, verse 3. But Saul began ravaging the church and assaulting believers, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, putting them in prison. So Stephen is the first that gets this kind of treatment. It, like, it's fear... And self-preservation instincts kick in hard across the Holy Land. And to the point, and it's not a bad thing, because people start running. They start leaving uh, Jerusalem in droves. And they start heading to different places. But they're not so concerned about their self-preservation that they, that they won't talk about what happened there. And so what Saul and the religious leaders meant to sort of squash the story actually sends it viral. Because all these people leave the center of persecution and take the story with them. And so they end up in all these other places telling people what they've experienced. And so just very quickly, one of those guys is Philip. He goes to a place called Samaria, a very unlikely place. If you know anything about Samaria, no time to take for that. But Philip ends up in Samaria, starts doing similar things that Stephen was doing. And this guy, Simon, takes notice. He's our second here. Okay, so Simon comes along, sees what Philip's doing, and Simon is kind of a magician guy. We don't really know much about him. His name means sorcerer or power of God is what people call him, which I'm like, that's kind of a strange nickname. But he's known as this guy who can do incredible things enough that people sort of follow him as a magician. And so as Simon, he sees Philip in action and sees the way that a different kind of power seems to be flowing through him. Where people that are really callous and broken just by being around him are confronted with a new way that could open their lives to something fresh. Um, that's a way to describe it. So anyway, um, he's witnessing this. People notice there's something different about Philip. To the point where a bunch of people are like, we, we believe in this story. We want the spirit of Jesus. We see that you're doing stuff by the spirit of Jesus. And it's, and it's like inspiring. It's um, something that we all want, including the magician himself, Simon. He believes. And so he becomes a follower of the way. This way of saying, I'm not going to live for myself, but I'm going to live beyond that. And so as the story unfolds, Simon is just in, in awe of the kinds of things that are happening when he's around Philip or John and Peter show up. And he's just noticing people are, are like so impressed with these guys. Simon is like, wow, imagine if I could be like Peter. I could be like John. I remember being a magician where everybody respected me, where I was the center of attention. That's self-preservation in another way. It's about growing your, yourself so that you can receive more attention. And it's not in the spirit of Jesus. It's in the spirit of selfishness, of self-preservation, right? And so Simon, in the spirit of self-preservation, even though he's starting to track, he comes up to John and, he Peter's, and John and Peter, and he says, Fellas, I got some cash. I want to buy the trick. Okay? Whatever's going on here, you've got, you've got a good hustle. 
because that's probably the way he did it. And so he says, whatever the, whatever the scam is here where people are like really being affected by the things you're doing and saying, I'll pay for it. I'll pay for it. So that's not in the spirit, is it? In the spirit, or like in the spirit of teamwork, in the spirit of Jesus, Simon is not in that spirit of saying, I want this because it's good, not because it's good for me. I want it because it's good, not because it's good just for me. And so what happens is they say, sorry, like you're on, you're in dangerous territory, pal, like that you would even say something like that. So repent. And then he says, please pray for me, and, and we don't hear anything else about him. But suffice to say, he's a great example of self-preservation gone too far. Of self-preservation, where we start to ask the question, I wonder if this God stuff can benefit me. Which isn't a bad question, right? Like a lot of us would say, well, hang on, like the way that I connected with Jesus in the first place was looking in the mirror not really liking what I see. And so, it's interesting, as I was reading up on self-preservation this week, um, I was reading about how our soul and our emotions also like to, to do self-preserving work, or we could call it safeguarding. So we develop um, patterns, habits, we develop walls, or um, self like programs for happiness, where we convince ourselves that it'll hurt less if I think about myself this way or whatever. And one of the things that I think a lot of people talk about in encountering this Jesus message is resolving some of those things. Is that the ways that I preserve my inner peace turn out to be kind of lies that in the long run um, rob me of something. And this, this Jesus message forgives me of that and restores me from that and sets me on kind of a new way of seeing myself. So we look in the mirror and we see a different version of ourselves. And that is awesome, but it's certainly not the end of the story. You know, being rescued by God and being changed and knit back together, huge part of the story, awesome part of the story. But if that becomes our sole focus, if the mirror becomes our sole focus, we can't look out the window. And everyone else is out the window. Okay? So when the mirror becomes solely our focus, that I think about God, I think about Jesus, I think about all the stuff as my way of dealing with my stuff. Awesome. That's great. But if it's all that there is, then we're missing the point of everyone else. One of my favorite quotes, um, William Temple says, is the church is the only institution that exists for the benefit of its non-members. Isn't that good? The church is the only institution that exists for the benefit of its non-members. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said similarly, he said the church is only the church when it's concerned about the good of others. And he carries on. And so we get this sense that the mirror helps us resolve some things, helps us establish the spirit of Jesus. But then we're invited to operate in the power or by the spirit of Jesus, then that takes us outward. That takes us beyond ourselves. 
Okay, so I want to end with this story here. <clears throat> Sometimes we hear this talk about the Spirit and by the Spirit and in the Spirit, and we see these heroes in the faith. We just think, like, well, that's not going to be me. Um, that's way beyond. Like, Stephen poked the bear to the point of knowing he's going to get stoned and he gets stoned. I don't know if I'm really signing, signing up for that. I was reading a blog entry by this woman who gives the, the story of, of going to a thrift store. So kind of like, all right, we're my people. And she's shopping for her dorm. She's in uh, college at the time. And she said that she got her things together and went up to the the counter, what's the place where you pay the till? And um, she's waiting in line, there's five people in front of her, and she said that the, the person running the till is just a battle axe, like the, the grouchiest, sort of crankiest old lady that she's seen. And so she said she's just waiting in line, and um, she's really kind of getting frustrated with this lady, the way, and every customer that goes by, it's getting worse, like she's getting crankier and crankier. For no reason, right? So she finally gets up there, she has her items, and one of them doesn't have a tag on it, you know? Which, um, we've all been in that position. You know, you get to the front, what, how much is this? And she just is like completely like livid that there's no, that this woman would have the nerve to bring something with no tag. So, you know, one of those situations where it's really easy to be annoyed. It's like, not a big deal, but why is this lady being such a whatever word you want to sub in there? And she said that she had this, what she called, soul nudge. It's like, a soul nudge, you know it when you get one. Because you don't usually want to do it. And you know that it's probably good. That you do. She said the soul nudge was like, she has this little bit of savings in the other part of her wallet. You know, the money you don't touch. And she gets this sense that she's supposed to hand it to the lady. Oh, okay. Now, that would be something very much in the spirit of Jesus, okay? Loving, you know, loving your enemy, maybe not quite enemy, but a kind of, you know, kind of a, a, a normal everyday version of that. And so she's, you know, kind of feeling the heat of that decision, waiting in line. Finally, when everything's done, she, she pulls the money from her wallet and hands it to the, clerk, to the lady at the table. And the lady at the till says, why'd you give that to me? And she said, I only had two words, so much. <laughs> Which I think is great. And then the lady said, today's my 75, my 75th birthday. No one has remembered. My sister hasn't called me, none of my kids have called me. Nobody cares. I've never felt as sad as I have before. I've never felt this sad. Never felt this sad, is what I'm trying to say. And that was it. So she thanked her, and she carried on her day. And as she left, she watched the woman's countenance change. It's from a soul nudge. Now that is operating by the power of the Spirit. It doesn't have to be like walking into enemy territory and 
asking to be shot or something. We're talking about, in fact, that can be the opposite. That can be about building ourselves up. But the key here is about being willing to be obedient and open to the soul prompt, whatever it is. Stephen, to the point of saying, I will be open, Holy Spirit, to you working through me. If it promotes the way of Jesus, sign me up because I'm convinced it's radically changed my life and I want it to change others. Simon comes along and says, I love this God stuff. Now if I could maybe you know, customize it to be a commodity that I could use. And, and that's, the, that's where this self-preservation goes really wrong. The Pharisees, the Sadducees come along systemically and say, hey, we have this instinct of self-preservation. Let's try it systemically. Let's try preserving the status quo and controlling the outcome of things. And that's the challenge I take from this. Self-preservation, sure, okay. I gotta look at that, I gotta look at my own life and say, where am I more concerned with advancing myself or improving myself or aiming, aiming or earning, gaining, maintaining in my own life? Where are those things alive and well? And I lend that challenge to you. Have fun with that. It's not easy. But systemically is a whole other issue. Where as a community that is trying to live a Jesus-shaped ethic, are we tempted to control and minimize the movement that doesn't necessarily look like we expect or what it used to look like? That's what the Sanhedrin was all about. And that strikes kind of closely to home when we start to say, okay, well, we would never do that, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we be the type that have instincts towards self-preservation that might be more concerned with not rocking the boat, not wanting change, because it's easier if it's predictable? God, we thank you for a chance to mull this over. And we know that um, reflection is, is a space where you speak. And so as we think about, about this, we ask you to interpret it in, in our experience. We know that um, you've given us our drives and our instincts, and so we don't have to apologize for them. But we also know that left to our own devices, we often go down a road that takes things too far, that takes things and that, that could be good and makes them selfish. It points uh, pure and wonderful things back at ourselves. We know that we're more, more accustomed to looking in the mirror than out the window. And so we thank you for the work that happens in front of the mirror. And we pray that because of that work, that it would, that it would lead us out the window. That it would help us to see the people around us that you invite us to have impact on or to have relationship with or to walk through life with. And where we as a community uh, have opportunity to preserve ourselves. Think of uh, how we've been praying this week as a community about money and where we budget our money. Help us to think about self-preservation in terms of money as a community. The money we have as a church in our account. 
Are we more concerned about saving it, making sure it's safe, and, or do you want us to give it away? Do you want us to bless people around us? Move us in our thinking around that as we get ready for that meeting next weekend. Or as we think about um, is issues of systemic injustice, where the, the power positions, where the, the people that, that have the influence and the authority to make change, where they become more focused on self-preservation than the point of the organization. And so help us live into that William Temple quote of being a group that exists for the benefit of our non-members. Help us to be others-oriented before we're selfish. We thank you that as we get wrapped up in the business of being partners with you, it changes us. It makes us into the best version of ourselves. We thank you.